Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and joining me this week is Simon Elliott, the head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. Simon, we've had the chance to uh, spend some time together this week at the latest Winter Floods conference in Edinburgh, which I was fortunate to attend. A very interesting occasion, number of speakers talking about the market. But uh, there's still not much good news to talk about in terms of the market, I guess, as we uh, kick off this particular week's uh, report. No, that's absolutely right. It's been yet another tough week for the investment company sector and a tough week for the market, frankly. The numbers are in the first four working days of the week that the investment company sector finds itself in negative territory, down 4.7%, and that represents one of the worst weeks of the year so far, and actually an underperformance of the wider UK market. So the UK market down about 3.9% in that first four days. Unsurprisingly, perhaps the sector average discount has widened out started the week about 7.6% and finds itself about 9.5%, certainly at the close of the market on Thursday. And that compares to an average of 5.6% so far this year. In fact, that 9.5% is actually the widest level we've seen so far in 2022. So what's been going on this week? Well, all the chat has been about central banks and their attempts to fight inflation and a lot of speculation that this, in fact, leads to recession. So we saw the Federal Reserve increase their rates by 75 basis points. That was the largest hike since 1994. And they made it clear that another similar hike is possible at their next meeting. So just to give some context around that, the US inflation figure, I think, hit 8.6% in May. The UK also saw an interest rate rise, not 50 basis points uh, or even 75 basis points, but it was the fifth consecutive rise. I think we're at 1.25% currently. And again, speculation that interest rates in the UK will hit 3% by the year end. Talk of inflation in the UK peaking in October at about 11%. So a lot of talk about inflation, a lot of talk about what the central banks are doing to address that. And yet at the same time, the war in Ukraine continues a lot of talk about Russia cutting energy supplies into the rest of Europe. So it's a bit of a gloomy picture, to be honest. Yeah, so taking all those things that we've been talking about all this year, which has contributed to the market sell-off in both equities and bonds, they're still out there, and to some extent they're getting worse. It is, of course, the case that the central banks have been working very hard to convince investors on the one hand that they have got the uh, desire and determination to reduce inflation, But at the same time, they're having to uh, cope with what is now a new strand of thought, which basically says, well, if you go too far too soon, you're going to drive the world economy into recession or the American economy, certainly, and maybe Europe into recession. Uh, In the UK, we might even be in a technical recession already, if you believe the GDP numbers, which, of course, you shouldn't because they're very rarely not revised later. But anyway, so it is a gloomy picture. But so far, far from uh, investors saying it looks like we've come to the end of it, which is... uh, I think what some people have been hoping that there would be some kind of rally from here. So far, we haven't seen that. And uh, I guess the mood amongst uh, most institutional investors, at least, is becoming quite dark, I think. Would that be fair to say? Yeah. And and you mentioned um, the seminar that we held up in Edinburgh at the start of the week. And look, I think overall, there is certainly a degree of caution, a degree of bearishness. I mean, many of the uh, individual presenters, so the fund managers who are up on the podium, made the point that they're they're kind of seeing opportunities in their particular areas. A number of them are kind of rotated from where they might have been 
uh, say, 12 months ago to where they are today. But it's clearly tough. It's very, very tough. So you've got people like Simon Edelston, the manager of uh, Midwind International, which is a global equities portfolio. He talks about the need to be pragmatic at this stage and the need to keep investors on side, keep them invested, so to enjoy the benefits of compounded returns over the long term. But I think it is a very tough time for, for active managers, clearly, and a lot to think about. Yes, and uh, one of the issues I think that is hardest for investors to work out, a lot of fund managers have obviously been making the point that uh, the things they own are a lot cheaper than they were before. If you look at you know conventional PE ratios with the share price coming down quite far in many cases, things that do look a lot cheaper. But of course, the big unknown is what is the future earnings going to be? If we're going to see this slowdown in the economy, we're going to see higher interest rates, which is going to affect uh, companies with relatively weak balance sheets and so on. So it seems to me the big issue now is... Uh, you know, what is going to happen to company earnings over the rest of this year? Because something that may look cheap at the moment might be on an eight times price earnings ratio will not be on that ratio if uh, if earnings uh, do fall quite sharply. Uh, would that be a kind of a conversation that you've been hearing going on around the place? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, again, going back to our seminar in Edinburgh, Guy Anderson, the manager of the Mercantile Investment Trust, which is part of the JP Morgan stable, talked about how earnings estimates, so these are estimates produced by invariably sell-side analysts and, and quite influential in determining how companies trade, how a number of these estimates have to be cut, have to come down because of exactly what you've talked about. So I think there is a kind of a period of adjustment. It's worth remembering that in terms of active management that they're often looking at numbers that are historic in the way that when we talk about the results, we're going to come on to talk about results across the investment company sector. There's always a lag between getting these results and what's actually going on. And I think we can all agree that as we're five and a half months into 2022, the world has changed and changed quite quickly. What we expected at the start of the year, that it'd be a year of economic recovery, the kind of post-pandemic phase, you know, that's all been kind of torn up and we're in quite a different phase. I mean, some people would say had fears about inflation at the start of the year, to be clear, but I suspect even you know, the most ardent of believers of higher inflation might have been a little bit surprised to see UK inflation now predicted to hit 11% in October. There certainly weren't many people who were predicting that uh, even at the start of the year, that's for sure. Even when uh, there was a lot of conversation about the risk of higher inflation and whether it was transitory or not, but there certainly weren't many people predicting it would go as high as 10 or 11%. That is for sure. And of course, meanwhile, in the bond market, well, the bond yields have sort of stabilised a little, but uh, there's yet no sign of bond yields coming back down again, which is what you would uh, maybe expect. If the outlook for economic growth uh, does deteriorate significantly, they might have reached a peak at some point. We haven't seen that yet. It could still happen. But it does also mean that if you're discounting future earnings, that uh, that's going to have an impact of having these higher yields in there as well. So interesting picture. But at the moment, the only positive, I guess, is that sentiment is, as recorded in all these sentiment surveys, is pretty negative. And quite often when it reaches extreme levels, you get some kind of rally and so on. So we haven't really seen that yet. So that might be something that will be coming up. But for the moment, picture looks quite dark at the moment. In that context, let's move on and talk now about some corporate activity. We're going to pick up first on a relatively unknown hedge fund that is listed uh, and part of the Investment Trust universe, and that is called Boussard and Gavaudan. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Ticker BGHL. What have they had to say uh, this week, Simon? Yeah, so the board made an announcement that notice had been served on the Investment Trust and the investment company by Emmanuel Gavadon, to borrow your pronunciation, requiring the board to convene a general meeting to consider the appointment of two additional directors nominated by him to the board. 
So Emmanuel Gavadon owns one and a half million euro shares in the investment company. And probably more importantly, he's also the principal of the fund's investment manager. In fact, he's the uh, CEO. Suffice to say, he's also a member of a concert party, which owns about just over 28% of the fund's share capital. And that's in conjunction with the, the investment manager. So the board have said that Obviously, this requisition has been done correctly in terms of the legal process behind it, but it will now consult shareholders and, and come back to the marketplace. Right. So this is slightly unusual, I think, without uh, you know hearing more about what his thinking is here. Uh, but this is slightly unusual. This is kind of reversal of the normal trend where you know the normal trend in the last few years has been for portfolio managers and uh, their representatives or even their shareholders to not to be represented on the board, where typically will be just independent non-executive directors. So basically to see how this one goes, um, I did notice that um, this trust has committed itself to a continuation vote next year if the level of prevailing share price discount over the immediately preceding 12 months exceeds 15%. And uh, where is the discount on this trust at the moment? I've got it on about a 19%, and you're absolutely right. If that doesn't change, there will be a continuation vote. It's worth noting, though, that that will be an ordinary resolution. So basically, they just have to get over 50% of the shares voted to survive. And bear in mind that concert party owns about 28%. You know, it's not a slam dunk by any stretch of the imagination, but it's worth bearing that in mind. Okay, so just before we move on, I mean, it is a relatively, you know, flies beneath the radar. It's in the hedge fund sector. What has this performance been like over the last few years? I mean, I think the other thing to say is, of course, there isn't much trade in the shares, as far as I understand it, uh, compared to uh, many other investment trusts. Yeah, so just on that, there's a sterling share class, a euro share class. It's traded in London and on Euronext as well. I think the euro share class in Euronext is where the liquidity is. In terms of the performance numbers over the last five years, it's generated an NAV performance up 21%, a little bit better over the last three years, up 30%. But when you compare that with, say, BH Macro, which is probably the largest and best known name in the hedge fund sector. I mean, BH Macro, um, the sterling share class is up 88% over that period and up 55% over three years. So 88 over five years and up 55 over three. So at this stage, we can only speculate about what uh, I said he would be Monsieur Gavaudon is uh, planning to do and why he wants to put the two representatives on the board. That will be interesting. We'll have to follow that one and see how that goes. Okay, moving on, let's talk about some fundraising. There has been some fundraising, notwithstanding the terrible market conditions. And yet again, it's in a alternative asset class, which is not perhaps totally surprising. And it involves Foresight Sustainable Forestry, ticker FSF. They've made an announcement about fundraising this week. Yes, that's right. They're looking to place some shares at a price of 107p. That's to fund a pipeline that's been valued at just short of £77 million. That placing will close on the 23rd of June, which is Thursday next week, with the results announced the following day. I think those shares will start trading on the 28th of June. But it's worth noting that the fund's largest shareholder, an outfit called Blackmead Infrastructure, which is actually part of Foresight's Inheritance Tax Fund, has committed to subscribe for up to 30% of the new shares. But Foresight Sustainable Forestry is a relatively new fund, actually. It only came to the market in November last year. Uh, It raised £130 million through its IPO. And in fact, it did give an interim update as part of this announcement. And certainly at the end of March, 91% of its proceeds or the IPO proceeds had been committed or invested at that stage. 
Okay. And so, I mean, they've come back within, what, seven months or so of their launch, maybe a bit more than that, seven, eight months of their launch. And uh, what's the argument for forestry? Why has this uh, proved popular so far, would you say? It certainly has proved popular. And you can see that in terms of the premium rating that it trades on. So it's on about an 8% premium at the moment. And in fact, its share price, certainly at the close of Thursday, stood about 115p. So in other words, it was above that placing price. But I think forestry is obviously therefore seen as an in-demand asset class. Obviously, it has the benefit of being a real asset. It's worth noting, actually, this is not an income play. This is very much a kind of total return capital growth story. Uh, That's certainly my recollection. But it's that idea of a long-term asset class and the capital growth that it will generate. Yes, they're developing forestry rather than actually chopping down trees in order to generate an income. That's, uh, I guess, the point. Well, that'd be interesting to see how that one goes. I mean, there's nothing else like it. We used to have a a forestry investment trust a few years ago, did we not, as I recall, or one that invested in timber or something like that? Am I right about that? No, there were a couple at one stage, um, Thanos and Cambion. That's right. I remember, yeah. And then what happened to them? They basically uh, disappeared, effectively. Yeah, one was delisted, and I, I think the other might just be still with us, but in runoff at the moment. I mean, if it is, it's uh, it's very, very small. Yeah. Okay, so that's that one. No other fundraising this week, uh, but we got some interesting results this week, which we're going to go through. Uh, before I do that, I'm just going to mention for the subscribers to the Moneymakers Circle, we have an interesting profile on Cordian Digital Infrastructure. Adding to our list of profiles, I think we're up to about 40 now, quite in-depth profiles of, of different investment trusts. And I've written some commentary around some of the results and uh, the market. For those who are interested in that, let's talk about Linsell Train Investment Trust, ticker LTI. A very interesting, rather unusual vehicle, which has had a lot of support over the years, went to a very high premium at one point. But um, tell us what they've had to say this week, Simon. Yeah, these were annual results for the year to the 31st of March. In that time, they generated an NAV total return was actually down about 2.3%. And that compared with a rise of 15.4% for the MSCI World Index. In share price terms, they actually struggled even more. So their share price total return was down 20% as the rating moved from a 20% premium to a 1% discount. What hit the NAV performance? Well, a key detractor was PayPal. Its share price fell by 52% in the period. And also the portfolio, which is actually quite a concentrated portfolio, was underweight uh, to energy and financials. That proved to be a headwind. And also the valuation of Linzel Train Limited was reduced as well. And that reflected a fall in assets under management. Uh, And they made the comment that that may have an impact on the dividend in future years. Yes, so obviously this trust is uh, notable, particularly because of its shareholding in the management company of Linsell Train, run by uh, Nick Train and Mike Linsell. And that's been an extraordinarily successful investment. I recall they they put it in the trust at the very beginning to help get it away, as it were, this tiny stake in the investment management company. And it's turned out to be a real goldmine for the investors. I think the stake in the business is worth over 40% of the net asset value. I think I I read that, Uh, something like that anyway. So it's been a combination, I think, of uh, relatively uh, poor performance by uh, Linsell Train's open-ended funds and so on, which get management fees, and the style of investing that Nick Train does, which, uh, as we I think we talked about him in the context of Finsbury Growth and Income, which he also manages, his style is definitely out of favour. Uh, I thought the interesting thing here was, I mean, Nick Train and Mike Linsell have now been you know, managing money in their firm for over 20 years, uh, and they've started to talk about the succession, because that's obviously always an issue for fund management companies when the founders retire. But I think they're saying they've got no 
intention of moving on for the time being. No, I think that's right. I mean, look, this is quite a substantial business. I mean, just to kind of flesh out some of the numbers, Linzel Train Limited represented 44% of Linzel Train Investment Trust's net assets at the end of March. I mean, as a business, it was responsible for assets under management of 20.5 billion at that stage, and apparently was generating net profits of 43 million. So the stake that the investment trust has in the business, it's a 24% stake, that was valued at 97 million pounds at the end of March. A year earlier, that stake was worth 114 million pounds. So you can see it's come down, but still very material in the context of this investment trust. But no, there's been a lot of talk about what happens over the long term to the business. And they did give some colour around that in terms of the pool of investment talent and succession planning. I mean, I think the comment was that Nick Train and Mike Linzel have made a commitment of at least another seven years. But the point was made that there are five additional members of the investment team now, and a number of them are kind of building track records in their own right, not necessarily through the investment trust market, but in terms of open-ended funds. So it's something that's obviously on everybody's minds. Yeah, so they're investing with the future, as you say, another in the team. Also, I think the board just flagged up the fact that, uh, as you say, at some point they may have to uh, reduce the dividend. But the dividend is not really a particularly important part of the story for this particular trust, is it? It's got a 1% or 2% dividend, I think, something like that. But tell us more about the premium, because the issue here has been this trust for a long time went to a very large premium, reflecting the fact that this hidden value in the management company wasn't always captured in the formula that calculates the value of the investment management company's stake. Uh, but what's been happening to the uh, the premium this one over the last few years? Yes, yeah, so the premium at the moment, well, it's I've got it on a premium of about four or five percent at the moment, but that compares with an average over the previous twelve months of nineteen percent. I mean, it's obviously been quite volatile, but it's been as high even in that twelve month period as forty five percent. And my memory is that it's not that many years ago when Lindsay Train Investment Trust was trading on a hundred percent premium to NAV. So I mean, we have seen quite extended premium ratings in the past. And in fact, to be fair, the managers, so Nick Train, Mike Linzel, have cautioned investors against investing at those kind of levels. And it's worth noting that it is quite a rare thing to see an investment trust on that kind of premium rating, because invariably what would happen is that an investment trust would issue new shares to kind of meet that demand. In the case of Linzel Train Investment Trust, they decided not to do that because they didn't want to dilute down the holding that they had in Linzel Train Limited. So that was very much part of the plan, but it did, as a result, see that premium rating at times go out to quite an extended level. That's no longer the case. As I said at the moment, they're on about a 4 or 5% premium. Just on the yield side of it, the dividend is not unimportant, actually. So I've got it on a yield of about 4.8% or so at the moment. They pay um, a final dividend. They've also paid some special cash as well. So they have been pretty good at kind of building that dividend up over, over past years. Okay, so I stand corrected on that one. That's interesting. We move on and talk now about Aberdeen Diversified Income and Growth. That's ticker ADIG. What have they had to announce this week? Yeah, these were interim results to the end of March. In that period, they generated an NAV total return of 3.8%, so a positive number. A little bit better in share price terms, up 4.4%, as their discount narrowed from about 18% into about 16 17%. Uh, they did buy back some shares in that six-month period as well. But what was going on here? Well, private market investments drove returns, and they also had some success on the equities front. It's worth noting at this stage that this is a kind of multi-asset type vehicle, kind of concentrating on building capital and income. 
Areas that performed less well included fixed income and credit, but they made the comment that the loss was relatively muted. In that private markets section of the portfolio, the standout performers were infrastructure, perhaps unsurprisingly given what we talk about every week, and also private equity as well. But the revenue return per share came in at 2.79p. Uh, that was in line with the first half in 2021. And they've declared total dividends of 2.8p. And that represented an increase from 2.76p in the same six-month period last year. OK, so this word trust sits in the flexible investment sector. And uh, what's its kind of distinctive features? What stands it out from some of the others in that uh, particular sector, would you say? Yeah, and, and again, this is probably a sector that we talk about every week, and there's quite a range of funds and different approaches. I mean, we spend a lot of time talking about capital gearing, personal assets, capital partners, and so on and so forth. This one is differentiated by the fact that, as I mentioned, it's very much about a multi-asset type approach. And in fact, it's probably had a bit more of a tilt to private markets in recent years. So Nalaka da Silva took this one over back in September 2020. But the yield, the income side of it is quite important. So I've got it on a yield on a historic basis, dividend yield of 5.6% at the moment. OK, next up is another relatively obscure trust, I think it's fair to say, in terms of the uh, the general investment public. Anyway, this is something called JZ Capital Partners, ticker JZCP. Perhaps you better tell us, first of all, what this particular trust does, Simon, and then you can tell us about their results, final results, to the 28th of February, 2022. So this investment company is focused on US and European microcap investments. At the end of February, they had 31 holdings across 11 industries. And they've also been involved in US property in the past. And frankly, that's probably one of the reasons they've ended up in the situation they find themselves. I mean, it's trading on about a 56% discount at the moment. I suspect most people would regard it as a bit of a special situation. But let me just run through some of the numbers. So in that 12-month period to the end of February, their NAV was up 0.9%. They did see some realizations in that time, uh, generating $66 million, including a company called Salter Labs. And, and possibly more importantly, there is a potential future distribution from uh, an investment they have in something called the secondary fund, which could generate between 89 and $94 million dollars and that will lead to an uplift of between 56 and 63 cents to the investment company's NAV. Now why is this important is because this is actually quite a highly geared investment company. So I think gearing stood was about equivalent to 46% of net assets at the end of February and a, a number of bits of that debt are due to be repaid in relatively quick order. So it includes a zero dividend preference share that's 58 million pounds is due to be paid back on that on the 1st of October. They've also got some subordinated notes, $32 million. They're payable in September. Uh, and they've also got some five-year senior secured loan facility as well. So what's the story here is that this is a, an investment company that because it got involved in US property and because those valuations came down quite sharply, it found itself quite overly geared. And what it's trying to do at the moment is realize some of these investments to pay down that debt. The board is confident that the expected distribution, the potential distribution I mentioned, will provide sufficient cash to redeem the zero dividend preference shares. However, and this is worth noting, the report of directors uh, in the results discloses a material uncertainty as to the fund's ability to continue as a going concern. And this is slightly arcane language and quite rare in the investment trust sector. But basically, there's a kind of question mark over the future of this fund, given that it has these debt obligations. 
Yes, and therefore, presumably, current market conditions aren't particularly favourable for this one in terms of getting it back into a steady state. I suppose real estate has done relatively better recently, but uh, you imagine this is going to be quite tricky for this particular trust. And uh, the performance, therefore, presumably has been pretty poor because of the gearing has been uh, aggravating the uh, the losses that were being made. Yeah, I'm, it's been a roller coaster to be honest. So over the last five years, in share price total return terms, it's down 72%. But actually, over the last month, it's up 51%. And that will be on the back of that potential realisation, that potential distribution that I mentioned. So very, very highly geared fund and a, a real special situation. Okay. Well, we'll move on now and talk about some results with um, some smaller and microcap companies. Uh, Montanara UK Smaller Companies, ticker MTU. Annual results, the 31st of March. How did they get on? So a tricky period, perhaps unsurprisingly, given everything that's going on. The NAV was down about 5% in that 12-month period. And that actually represented an underperformance of their index by about 4% or so. So what happened here? Well, the underperformance was attributed to the rotation away from quality and growth companies in the first quarter of this year. And that apparently undid all the good work that had been done up until that point. So particularly the first six months of the, the past financial year. So names that worked for the Montanaro team, well, it was Big Yellow, YouGov and Traxxas. Largest negative contributors included Frontier Developments, Avon Protection and Tristel. But the portfolio is relatively focused. It's got about 50 holdings or so, of which the top 10 represent 34%. Gearing stood about 4% at the end of March. But it's also worth noting, so Charles Montanaro, who is a very experienced investment manager, has been involved in this particular investment trust on and off for a number of decades, actually. But they announced that a gentleman called Gideo, I'm going to say Daki Lombardo, I might have mispronounced that, He's been appointed as what they're calling the kind of backup manager to the investment trust with immediate effect. That said, the intention is that Charles Montanaro will stay on to at least the 2026 AGM. Okay, so this has been caught, if you like, in the crosshairs of all the things that have been working against smaller companies in the last six months. I mean, it's come down a long way from uh, its peak. I've got it sort of high as was back in... uh, well, September last year, and it's traded off pretty dramatically since then. But that's not unusual in this particular space, is it? I mean, how does this uh, performance compare with some of the other names in that sector? Yeah, no, I mean, I've got the share price down 34% in the last six months. And frankly, it's in good company. So you look at names such as BlackRock, smaller companies down about 35%. Aberdeen UK Smaller Companies Growth, which is Harry Nimmo's vehicle, down 36% in that six-month period. BlackRock Frogmorton down 42%. So there are a number that have been hit very hard in that six-month period. Over the longer term, so five years, share price total return, uh, Montanaro is up 17%. And that puts it, I would say, kind of middle of the pack or certainly in line with the weighted average for that UK small cap subsector. Yes, it's been pretty brutal, to be honest, out there. <laughs> pretty brutal for many of these smaller company investment trusts because uh, they had a particularly strong period coming out of the pandemic. I think that's what will be frustrating for them, but perhaps uh, it, it helps to explain what's happened. It's been a real roller coaster ride, very strong performance after the pandemic, and then a very sharp sell off this year, which no doubt historians will look at with great interest. Let's move on and talk about River and Mercantile UK Microcap, which is even further down the market capitalization scale, ticker RMMC. They've produced some interim results to the period to 31st of March. 
That's right. And they generated an NAV total return in negative territory of 23.5% during that time. That compared with a decline of 10.3% for their benchmark. The point was made that of the 42 portfolio companies, only seven delivered positive relative performance over the period. The key contributor was a company called Capital, and that added about 1.2% to performance. But just under half of the portfolio are in what are deemed to be growth companies, and we know that uh, growth companies have been derated. The manager, which is a chap called George Enzor, he's been happy to add to the list of holdings, companies such as Strip Tinning, Reynolds, and One Spatial. And actually, uh, he hasn't made any disposals at, at all during this six-month period. The fund was ungeared at the end of March. But this is very much focused on microcaps, which they define as being those with uh, market caps of £100 million or less. Yes, and it's, uh, it was only, uh, well, so middle of last year that this one uh, got close to trading at a premium, which is a pretty uh, extraordinary for a microcap trust, very unusual. But again, it's been caught in the wash, if you like, from this big market sell-off. So in discount terms, I mean, is it, uh, it must be getting close to the levels at which it was before. When the man- new manager came in, it had been on a big discount before that, as I recall. Yeah, I've got it on about a 13% discount or so at the moment. That compares with an average of 11% over the 12-month period. But within that time, as you say, it was kind of hit a small premium, about 1% or so, but it's been as wide as a 21% discount. And, you know, that's probably quite extreme in that length of time. But over the course of its history, we have seen periods where it's performed strongly uh, and that rating has come in. Uh, And they also have a mechanism whereby they return capital to investors if they get to themselves to get about 100, 110 million pounds. And then they do uh, returns of capital. And they have done several of those through the life of the company. Equally at the moment, it's got a market cap of about 65 uh, million pounds and sits on a discount. So they'd be wishing for those conditions to return, of course. Uh, Let's move on and then talk about uh, an overseas trust now, JP Morgan European Discovery Trust, which uh, produced some annual figures to the 31st of March. Ticker JEDT. That's right. And in that time, they generated an NAV total return up 0.3%. That compared to a rise of 3.8% for their benchmark. And again, the underperformance was attributed to being overweight growth names. The management team, so this is Francesco Conte and Edward Greaves, they've increased the weighting to industrials and financials while reducing consumer discretionary names. Uh, It's worth noting as well, actually, the share price total return was actually down 1.3% as the discount widened from about 13% to nearer to 15%. But they pride themselves on uncovering Europe's hidden gems. And in the period, they paid a final dividend of 5.5p. Indeed. And this is a sector in which... um well, it's a European smaller companies, uh, and uh, we actually had one of those uh, speaking at your event this week. Can you uh, enlighten us what they had to say about the prospects? Yeah, so we had Ollie Beckett, who's the manager of the European Smaller Companies Trust, which people may remember used to be called TR European Growth, and he presented his thoughts on yeah, the European small cap market. I mean, he was very much about the stocks and what he's seeing at the stock level, as you would expect, to be honest, from for most small cap managers, that tends to be the way that they do it. And he was on about the opportunities that he's seen, though recognising the headwinds that Europe faces at the moment. I mean, I think the point that Ollie was making that with an investment trust, it is very, very helpful to have that captive pool of capital, particularly when you start investing in small and mid cap companies where liquidity in the secondary market can go against you. 
And he compared that, I think, to the experience of open-ended funds, where at moments of the, of the market cycle, we don't really want to be a forced seller, but you have to, to meet redemptions. Obviously, that's not a problem that you have with investment trusts. And he made the argument that that allows him the flexibility to invest across the lifestyle of companies. So in his particular portfolio, there's a whole range of companies that he's backing, but at very different stages of their development. Yeah. So basically, if you're in this kind of sector in the US, you have to ride with the volatility, basically, and uh, trusting in the fact that the structure is going to help you over time. But at the moment, there's obviously not much good news out there for anybody who's in this sector of the market. Let's move on and talk about uh, Templeton Emerging Markets, ticker TEM, been around for a long time, the oldest uh, emerging market investment trust. Uh, and they've had some final results for the year to 31st of March as well. And uh, they don't look that good to my eye. Your eye might be right, actually. So they were down 17.3% in NAV total return terms. That compared to a decline of 6.8% for the MSCI Emerging Markets Index. In share price terms, well, they were down 21.2%. And really what happened to Temit or Templeton Emerging Markets in this year is that they were kind of hit... It was a double whammy. So in the first half of the year, they were impacted by the regulation on Chinese technology companies. And again, we've talked a lot about that over any number of months. And then, of course, in the second half of the year, that uh, particularly, I guess, in the first three months of this year, they were hit by the invasion of Ukraine. And in particular, they had five Russian stocks that have been ascribed a zero value. So they were overweight Russia going into the conflict. So the key detractors in the 12-month period included Alibaba, Lukoil, Yandex, Spurbank of Russia, Brilliance China Automotive, and Tencent. So that probably illustrates the kind of the Chinese-Russian uh, double hit. And the portfolio is an underweight China, but it's still the largest market exposure. Um, South Korea also quite a lot of uh, big weighting there. But the long-term themes of this portfolio include consumption premiumization digitalization and technology, uh, and gearing stood about 1% or so at the end of March. Right, so a relatively disappointing performance accentuated by those with unfortunate exposure in Russia. Okay, let's move on and talk about uh, some specialist trusts now. We've got uh, JLEN Environmental Assets Group, ticker J-L-E-N. They've had some annual results to the 31st of March. Tell us about that. Yeah, and quite a strong set of numbers here for JLEN. Uh, their NAV was up 25% in that 12-month period. And actually, a lot of that, I think we talked about their NAV that they announced a week or two ago. So, you know, why the uplift? Well, basically, it's the upward revision to electricity and gas price forecast, but also an uplift in valuation on assets. So there were a couple in particular that had previously been held at cost, and that certainly acted as a kicker. The team have been quite busy, actually. So over the year, they've made investments into new sectors, including biomass CHP, so combined heat and power and energy from waste. They've also sold an asset, a French wind farm, and that was at a 25% uplift to the book value just prior to the sale. The portfolio generation was up 34% in the year, but actually 6% below target, and that was a reflection of low wind speeds in the period. So it's worth noting with JLEN, it has a whole collection of renewable energy infrastructure timing. So it's, it's not just wind, solar and anaerobic digestion, which is, was the case at its launch. It's kind of branched out into lots of different areas. But in terms of what that means to shareholders, well, the cash dividends 
uh, that are paid during the year came in at 6.79p. They were covered 1.1 times. And in fact, the dividend target for the financial year 2023 has been put to 7.14p. That represents a 5% increase and is expected to be covered in excess of one and a half times. Right. So this has been a popular trust, I think. And uh, as you say, they've been kind of evolving the strategy. It's become a more broadly diverse uh, investor in the areas which it uh, targets. Uh, and what kind of yield do you get on this one? It's still trading at a premium, I think. But what kind of yield do you get on it? Yeah, I've got a 5.5% dividend yield on a historic basis at the moment and a premium of between about 6 and 7%. Okay. So that's uh, steady as she goes, effectively, with some strong performance during the year, though, 25% increase in NAV. Let's move on to talk about Syncona, ticker SYNC. Uh, they've had final results for the year to 31st March as well. What did uh, their performance look like? Yeah, their NAV was up to 194.4p. So the NAV total return came in at 0.3%. That compared with a decline of 12% for the NASDAQ uh, biotech index. It's probably worth just pausing at that stage. So Syncona, for those unfamiliar with it, is in the kind of biotech and healthcare sector, but it's very, very different from most ordinaries, it were, biotech and healthcare plays. So what they're looking to do is effectively build a portfolio, as they put it, between about 15 and 20 healthcare companies. And it's very much the case that they look to kind of found these businesses in a number of instances and help build them up and provide funding over the long term. So quite a different approach from anything else. So what happened in this period? Well, they sold a company called Gyroscope. That was sold to Novartis for $1.5 billion. And that was one of the reasons why the NAV return came in where it did. They also saw some uplifts from a number of financings for their companies. Uh, and so that was the 41p per share uplift. However, that was offset by a decline in some of their listed assets. So some of the companies that they've backed are now publicly listed companies, and they saw a decline in their share prices. But basically, the portfolio companies raised over $700 million in that period. So their capital pull increased to just short of £785 million. Pounds. Um, so basically, they've got quite a lot of firepower to spend on developing these new wave of companies. And on that note, they expect to deploy between about £150 and £250 million pounds in the 2023 financial year. So as you say, this is a slightly different vehicle to the others in the healthcare and biotech sector. We talked about uh, that sector and some people were saying a little while ago that they think, you know, the share price falls have been overdone, they're becoming good value. But uh, what's the performance been like on Sincona compared to some of the other you know, bigger names in that sector? So if you look at five years share price total return, they're coming in about 24% at the moment in NAV terms, 36%. But if you compare them with, there's a whole range of different companies here, but if you compare them with, say, Worldwide Healthcare Trust, which I think we talked about relatively recently, it's the Orbimed vehicle and a you know, very different fund, very different approach, much more widespread, looking at uh, the vast majority of its portfolios in publicly listed companies. That's up 34% on a five-year NAV total return basis, up 20% in share price terms. The investment trust that's got the strongest performance in share price terms over the five-year period is actually Polar Capital Global Healthcare, and that's up 44% over five years in share price terms. So uh, this sector has sort of sold off quite sharply, I think, over the last uh, year or so. I mean, some of the shares are down quite a long way, but uh, has done relatively well in that context, partly because of its uh, different business model, I suppose it's fair to say. So let's move on and talk about Thomas Lloyd Energy Impact Trust. This is another relatively new 
Trust came to the market not so long ago. Interim results to the 31st of March 2022, ticker TLEI. What can you tell us about this one, Simon? Yeah, so these were interim results to the end of March. I mean, a very short period, really, because they only came to the market back in December last year when they raised £87 million. Without getting too bogged down in the NAB numbers, effectively, they stood at $1.002 when you adjust for a financial liability, which uh, fell away at a later stage. But probably the key takeaways here that as at the end of March, 40% of the net IPO proceeds had been committed. So they made an investment in the Philippines uh, and they've also got approval for an investment in a company called Solar Arise. So um, the pipeline includes the remaining 57% interest in that company and therefore the board believe that they're on track to substantially deploy the IPO proceeds by the end of the third quarter this year. Which I guess is what they'll want to do. They want to get it deployed and they'll also want to see whether there's any opportunity even in these markets to to maybe bulk up the size of the trust a little bit. I mean, is it uh, particularly specialised in what it does? Is there more capacity that they could uh, use? I'm, I'm guessing there is. I mean, it is, it's quite different from the rest of the peer group because it's focused on Asian investments. So there's nothing quite like this. I mean, the share price uh, at the moment, I've got it on about a 7% premium. So it would suggest that, you know, if that doesn't change over the next six to nine months, there might be the scope to uh, issue new paper or raise additional capital. But obviously, the key thing here at the moment is is how successful they are in deploying the initial capital they got through IPO. Indeed. Okay, so we've got finally a couple of uh, property trusts to talk about, both interesting ones. So one is Custodian REIT, ticker CREI. It's had some annual results 31st of March, and I noticed they're going to uh, be proposing to change their name. But uh, perhaps you can tell us about that as well as about the figures, Simon. Yeah, so a decent set of results. Basically, they were up in EPRA NTA total return terms, that's equivalent of NAV, up 28.4%. The share price total return, not quite as good, actually, up 17%. But what drove that increase in their uh, net assets? Well, there was £94 million of valuation increases. Uh, They also made some profit on disposals. And as you may remember, they were involved in the acquisition of Drum Income Plus REIT, Um, I think that was towards the end of last year, if memory serves me right, uh, and that benefited their performance as well. So the portfolio was valued at £665 million at the end of March, and their EPRA earnings per share came in at 5.9p. That was up from 5.6p in the previous year, and they've declared or will have paid out total dividends of 5.25p. So in other words, they were covered. Their target dividend for their next financial year has been set at 5.5p. So on the name change front, they're going to look to change their name from Custodian REIT PLC to Custodian Property Income REIT PLC. And that's subject to shareholder approval at the AGM in August. And we've talked a lot about uh, discounts in this sector, but uh, this one, presumably the rating has improved a little bit from the low points uh, during the pandemic and the aftermath. But uh, what's been happening there? Yeah, it's been derated a little bit, actually. So I've got the average discount over a 12-month period, about 7%. And yet today, or certainly at the close of market on Thursday, it stood about a 13% discount. I mean, that would be true of, of some of the other UK commercial property companies as well, actually. We've talked a lot about how they've benefited hugely over the last 12, 18 months. But certainly more recently, we have seen some of those discounts widen out again. Indeed. And I think that is a function of the environment. I mean, this one, as I recall, I mean, there was a period when it used to trade at a, at a premium. Am I right about that? Before the pandemic, it was uh, it was very highly regarded, quite well rated. 
Yeah, well, even more recently than that, in that 12-month period, I, I told you it traded on an average 7% discount, but it has at a point in time been on a premium rating of 5%. So yeah, more recently, it has been on a premium rating. And finally, we can talk about another interesting property trust, which is a commercial property trust, value and index property income, ticker VIP, where there's been some changes in the course of the last year or so in the general approach. So uh, perhaps before you tell us about that, we could talk about these annual results for the year to the 31st of March. And in that time, they generated an NAV total return of 15.6%. And to break that down, the property portfolio generated a total return of about 20% or so, and the equity portfolio came in at 24%. So at one stage, it was a kind of hybrid vehicle, quite unusual really, of having a UK commercial property section and a UK equity. And essentially, I think it was small cap, uh, if memory serves me right. Uh, they made the decision to kind of switch into to property. So the equity part of the portfolio has been sold down. So uh, let me see if I can give you the numbers for that. So at the end of March, the portfolio comprised of 83% in UK property, 27% in UK equities and 5% cash. Obviously, that reflects the fact that it was geared as well. Um, and I think the idea is that that equities portfolio will come down in time. Some of it was property securities as well, actually. Yeah, I think most of the equities now are property equity or property related. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Okay, and so what was it that uh, contributed most of them during during the course of the year? Yeah, so, I mean, they benefited from some of the property valuations. And they've also been quite active in terms of the property portfolio as well. So they acquired 14 new properties. They were valued at £63 million during that time with an average net initial yield of 5.3%. They did make some disposals as well. But the, basically, the shift here is not just to property, but those with long leases with inflation-linked rents. And at the end of March, the portfolio had 96% of contracted income with index-linked or fixed rent increases. It also collected 100% of contracted rents due in the financial year. So what does that mean for shareholders? Well, dividends of 12.6p were declared for the financial year, and that was up 2.3% year on year. And that represented the 35th year of dividend increases. Indeed. So this has been a specialist trust, as you said, run by Matthew Oakshop and for many years, uh, Angela Atlas, I think, around the equity portfolio. But it's kind of refocused itself, but it hasn't been immune. I mean, it used to trade at a premium, a big, significant premium before the pandemic again, uh, obviously come way back when got to a premium again, I think at one point, but is now, uh, what, trading on a relatively modest discount. Is that right? Yeah, I've got it on about a 9% discount, but that compares to an average over the previous 12 months of about 16%. So it is one, and probably in the minority of UK commercial property funds that are trading at a tighter rating than their 12-month average. Indeed. And I think the refocusing towards this index-linked inflation-linked property with a very experienced property manager there, Matthew Oakshot, who I think is also uh, stepped back from sort of full day-to-day involvement, but he's still involved very much in that, I think. No doubt that's going to... uh, help the rating over time. Okay, so that brings us to the end of this week's podcast. As I said, been a rather choppy week, to put it mildly, but uh, we keep uh, tracking things in the hope that uh, things might change, sentiment might change, but uh, one has to acknowledge there are a lot of a lot of headwinds out there for the investment trust sector to manage, and, uh, you know, the widening discounts do reflect that. So uh, do you have any thoughts on where we go from here, Simon? Well, I think the old adage of selling may and go away is not the worst adage you'll ever hear. And there may be some truth in it. But, you know, I think there'll be some canny investors who will look at what's going on in the marketplace and realise that we are seeing some quite big sell-offs. And it's the case that there'll be some investment trust companies 
that will be hit that probably don't deserve to be hit and that some people might take that as an opportunity to rotate into some higher quality names that may have until recently been trading on premium ratings but now find themselves on, on discounts and you know reposition their portfolio and take a long-term view on it. Indeed, but the fact is, of course, it's a long time since we had 10% inflation and it's a whole new environment which is going to have all sorts of impact, which, as you say, a lot of fund managers, not to mention the shareholders themselves, may have not had much experience of navigating through. So I think it's going to be interesting. And I think the only kind of safe prediction is that we're going to continue to see quite a lot of volatility. You know, we've seen quite big moves uh, week by week and indeed day by day. So I think that may be one of the uh, characteristics we're going to see from here. If, I don't know if you'd agree with that or not. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think it feels as if markets are getting increasingly choppy. Talking to a, a market maker, a trader relatively recently, they made the point to me that they hadn't really seen a significant capitulation in terms of, you know, even retail investors looking to kind of get out of equities in general. Obviously, we've seen some quite sharp price moves, but we haven't seen a kind of whole wave of panic. And, you know, let's hope we don't in many ways. But uh, equally, it wouldn't be a surprise if we did hit that point at some stage. Indeed. And that's the kind of thing to watch out for from this point, I think, is that if that spreads and then you get the classic case of a market overreacting to uh, to all the bad things that are going on rather than just correctly pricing it all in. Well, we'll have to see how that goes over the summer. Simon, thank you very much. Another famous uh, cricket victory, of course, in the last few days. I enjoyed that one and uh, very positive style. So uh, we'll look forward to talking about uh, all these things again next week. Thank you. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.